the body bags, they're on the stretchers being extracted up to this helicopter. Looking at the bags, they'd obviously been crushed underneath the aircraft. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. This is the second part of Angus Horton's interview with former signaller and 2nd Commando Regiment veteran, Adrian Humphreys. Be sure to listen to Volume 1 before continuing with this episode. Angus and Adrian's conversation continues with Adrian's recount of the night Luke Worsley was killed in action. Look, you've been the signaller or chook, as you're affectionately known as. You would have been the fly on the wall in quite a lot of events and actually been caught up in the action yourself. Can you talk to us about Luke Worsley and sadly the night he was killed? You just mentioned being a fly on the wall. I suppose that is a, a key example of a time that I was. 22nd of November 2007, we're, we're on an operation as a force element there. And back then we were close to 140 people mounted in vehicles Commando force element back then was effectively a mobile combat outpost. And they're sorry, they could shift it and move us as that sort of force element on the battlefield wherever they wanted that influence or that sort of that limited sort of position for a limited amount of time. Northern Mirabad, late November, it's getting cold. Not as many key personalities that the task group is seeking to eliminate at that point are popping above the threshold, so to speak. On the SIG, on the Chook, that's not only putting in requests on behalf of the XO out on, in the field in the OC to, to the intelligence crew back at, and OPSO back at uh, the camp to rustle up targeting for us. You're in a bit of both worlds. You're working for these fellas, these guys, these officers, and you're doing your job so you understand their position. But then you're also mates with shooters or guys down out in the platoons, the guys that you've trained with and whatever else, they just feel like they're being pushed around and pushed into and doing jobs and whatever else and being ordered simply out of boredom, the boredom of others, because uh, they don't see anything of significance in what they're doing on any given mission. Almost a, an exercise in character building, some of the missions that we had gone on during that rotation in particular. No one's popping. I get three reports come back in. These are three potential guys you can go after, but none of them are popping, i.e. their phones haven't started up or gone off or whatever. No human intelligence feed has seen them in X amount of time. And I remember the uh, ROC, I'd received this information on a tough book. I'd effectively disconnect the tough book from my data, from my radio, hand him the tough book, and he would go through it. He called in all the key appointments, the key sort of elements of the company at that point for a afternoon orders brief and said no one's popping above the threshold however we do have this historical target that alpha company cleared back in may they found wiring car wiring and so on and the like so rudimentary sort of items that could or could not be used in the making of an id distinctly remember him just saying nothing else is popping so why don't we go hit this tonight everyone in agreement we'll go hit this place okay cool all right and i think within moments of that the recon team that had been sent off to recon a route down into the green belt had just returned 
and you task them to then go off and prove a route, pathfinder route down to this area of Greenbelt that came off the main populated area. It came off like a little sort of U, um, a U shape of creek irrigation and small sort of compounds, complexes. So off they go. It's dusk, near on dusk by this point, and we were going to rally back with them. Half We were going to take off a couple of hours later and rally back with them. RV halfway to from there they take us all the way in dismount and foot infill to this target area uh, you talk about there's little ones that come up later on another good mate of mine is still in the unit he was in Luke's team on that one as a section with another team Cameron Baird was the 2IC of that second team and as a section while they were standing around gearing up in the vehicle drop-off area we'd had tons of dry holes and the guys had hit heaps of dry holes, like nothing, a, a target where there's absolutely not, of no significance and nothing's happened on it. But on that particular night, my mate said, yeah, Beardy said, oh, everyone, um, you know, I've got a feeling about this one, so switch on, something's up. I just got a feeling about it, words to the effect. He tells me that years later, I'll become privy to that info years later because I'm thinking shit, even after Beardy Cameron's been killed. So off we go, it's maybe, again, we called it the Commando Conga Line, it's a good, 200 meters of commandos in various positions, formations, making our way down to, from the vehicle drop-off area, probably about five and a half Ks as the crow flies, but given the terrain, canalizing and, and this shallow sort of valley that we used as our approach, it would have wound out to be a bit more than that. We hit a force separation point, the platoons, the force element splits into two platoons. Um, one of the platoons goes to hit their compounds, series of compounds over to the north and Luke's platoon starts to push down across along this sort of spur line down into this populated area or sorry, a vegetated area and then hitting their sort of um, compounds as well. Me with the executive officer, that sort of area where you've got to be able to overwatch all things. We sat in overwatch with the recon team. I got all my comms up and sort of sat down ready, like I'd had so many nights before, ready ready for, in my mind, nothing. This is another night where we're just gonna be freezing my ass off up here on the side of a hill, watching guys go about it, and then come back off with wet feet and they'll just be pissed off and annoyed as well. But that was short-lived, maybe moments after that, there was a couple of suppressed sort of shots. And we all, I remember we all sort of, we're under nods, everyone's on MVG, but we just looked at each other and went, dog, as in someone's just shot a dog and it's again another common occurrence but then the response was this massive burst of pkm fire and it's a russian machine gun so it just sounds different and when again you look it was like fuck that wasn't a dog it's no dog yeah and then it kicked off that compound just it looked like a brawl in the edamoga pub even under nvg there was just flashes and mm. shit going everywhere and that was just externally looking into it from where we were and in addition we were engaged out in that green belt the only way, again, you try to link stuff together later on, you distinctly remember, like, we know we got fired at, like, Trace came right at us, which said to me, they can actually see us. They don't have NVDs. Well, were you silhouetted? We or? were silhouetted. It was a moonlit sort of night. Someone in between the two compounds as the river or the creek sort of snaked its way around to go back past us on the far side on maybe the northeastern, most northeastern point between the two compounds, the fields, we were engaged from there initially. Recon, because people engaged back. And then that sort of went dead. But then further into the fight, as the fight's occurring here, we have a Predator on station, American Predator on station, and it's IDing and watching two shitheads moving tactically up this creek line. So we got the call, like the JTAC that was co-located with me, cleared him hot to drop a 500 pounder on him. The only thing I can think of looking back was they were in that position, they opened up on us, and then with return fire, they simply dropped the weapon and started moving to another location. They were a sentry in effect. But that 500 pounder came in really close. It was, I 
think in effect the danger closer just wasn't called as such and we weren't warned as such so when it screamed in it was again it's all happening at night but it was fucking close the fight continued prior to all of this one by friendly wia he's come over the radio to me i passed it through a couple of seconds afterwards it's come back through wia's kia you don't skip a beat at the time you just keep rolling through it but from that administrative point of view you need to push for information even though they're in a fight so there's a finesse there's a way to do it it's um yeah that was luke that was luke yeah luke was um KIA. that opening burst of gunfire that we heard that was a, that, got him. that was the burst that got him that team had entered that room that courtyard effectively fanned out pied out as you do the place wasn't an ied factory i know it's been reported as such and that's the common narrative but it wasn't a saying something like an ied factory it, it conjures up images of like smokestacks and factories and industry and it's just not the case it was just wiring that had been found on a previous clearance in effect it was it was a taliban halfway house and we just so happened to hit it on the night that there was a good half platoons worth of taliban transient taliban moving through the area because it was a key rat line to get down into kandahar the further east you went in Uruzgan, the more remote it came thus they were the key rat lines that they favored they saw again another sentry silhouetted on the roof of the courtyard on the far side as they were moving through he called out and identified him yelled out the target indication at that guy and then from there there was a second taliban down in the shadows on the ground floor level with them um, in the back sort of corner he's the one that opened up on in the direction of luke yelling adrian we're focused on a lot of the heavier moments but war can have its lighter side too are there any other funny things that you may recall more touching moments of humanity i guess um so roll back to october 2007 companies just rolled through the eastern end of chora we're going to seek to head back to our camp via a different route we've just completed a nearly three and a half week operation the start of which matt lock was killed in chora it was part of that clearance operation vehicles are all parked up line astern on the outskirts of this village and because we're there waiting for nightfall effectively kids start to filter out from the village. As a result of that, we always carried humanitarian aid stores, which was simply, you know, they ranged from water through to Dora the Explorer backpacks full of stationery. And the kids love them. So out they come, guys are handing everything out. I'm sitting, cause I'm monitoring comms. I never really leave the vehicle. I'm sitting on the back of the hull of our vehicle, pretty much just watching it all go down. And in amongst all the kids, there's a kid that's probably not even two and the call comes to mount up so guys start to get back into the vehicles the crowd starts to break up and i just spied this kid because he realized we're, we're all leaving and he hadn't received a thing so he's starting to like tear off and it got the better of me so i grabbed a 1.25 bottle of water out of our esky in the back of the car jumped down to walk over to him to give it to him and man just like bloody seagulls they all came flying back in all these kids trying to take it off me as i was handing it to him and trying to take it off him pushing them away just like holding onto it myself actually, not even getting to the kid, pushing him away, like telling him to shut up, chapsa, that's the only thing I knew in Afghani at that point. And then trying to hand it over to him, but I thought if I hand it to him, they're gonna steal it off him. So I pulled my pistol out and just whacked the kid in the side of the head with it, the biggest kid I could. And they all just like filtered. Cause the only thing they understand me is blunt trauma. He's still standing there though. I give him the bottle and man, this kid looked at this bottle like eyes like dinner place. Biggest, like it was half his size. So, he's just sort of holding it out like this precious heirloom that he's holding onto he walks back to his dad who was maybe 50 meters off or he walks up to this man that i'm assuming his dad this dude's sort of out witnessing all this as well with a baby on his hip 
and this kid just marches up to him and uh, looks up at him and just thrusts this bottle out toward him, like going, you know, like, Dad, look what I've got. Just the moment of reflection, I was like, shit, man, I could go into any service station in Australia right now and see countless bottles of fucking water. Mm. And that bottle of water is the biggest thing that kid's ever going to have or has seen up to this point. But that bottle of water is what you remember when you see the water now. Yeah, you do. You just It's like it, um, it instills in you this sort of a, this ingrained sense of gratitude you have when you come back to the world. In your final deployment, Adrian, you changed from being a signaler to an operator. Can you explain for our listeners the difference and how you found being in that new role? So the vast majority of my career, I was the Royal Australian Corps of Signals as a communications specialist, employment category number 266. Commandos carry the employment category like commando, dedicated commando with its own trade model of employment category number 079. You can be commando qualified in any of your primary corps or used to be, I don't think it's no longer the case. You can be commando qualified, but you still retain your primary employment category number and that role and that trade model. The writing was on the wall in regard to that sort of allowance. About 2009 or 2010, I started the process and late 2011, is when I completed the process of transferring over to the Royal Australian Corps of Infantry as an employment category number 079 commando. That stage of my career in SIGs, you start looking at sergeants courses and becoming a sergeant. But because of my intention to transfer, I was taken off all sort of promotion lists and whatever else. And as a result of transferring, you revert in rank. So I went from a Lance Corporal at that time back to being a private. When you were in Afghanistan, do you remember that fateful night in August, the 30th of August, 2012, when they had that helicopter crash? 29th of August. This uh, was the last of a series of three, counter, like a cycle of counter-narcotic missions that we were conducting with the Drug Enforcement Agency, US FAST teams, down in um, Helmand, the province to the south southwestern Afghanistan to the direct sort of or southwest of Uruzgan province. I think our wheels up time on the helos was somewhere between 2 and 3 a.m., so I'm up around 1. Heading to, I get you know, get out of bed, head to the mess for breakfast. Effectively, a lot of activity in the camp, a lot more than I expected for 1 a.m. in the morning. I was with and Nathaniel. Like we we sort of all went over in a group and just sitting around our table having breakfast or getting some food. The special operations engineer that's attached to their team, he came up and asked if we were still going on our mission, and we all just sort of looked at him blankly and went, "Yeah, why wouldn't we be?" And he said, "Well, three guys just got shot up in Chora, like a green on blue. So our other platoon, November's heading out. Like Perth were already gone, and the other platoon's heading out. So it caused a pretty big stir once we knew everything was going on. We just thought, fuck." And you're sharking for information off anyone, but ultimately it came down that November platoon, our other platoon, and Perth have got it handled as far as the response. We're on mission, we continue on mission with, with our raid that night. I remember getting into the back of the Bushmaster as the Bushmasters transported us down to the flight line from the camp. It was a pretty heavy atmosphere, but no one really talked in our team. That night, the force element was broken up. The platoon went in on two Marine Corps V-22 Ospreys and one of the teams, Oscar II, they were to insert as overwatch to the east of our target building via a, a, what they call a Zulu Huey, UH-1 Zulu model Huey, which is a Marine Corps model Huey. Get on board, commence our insertion. Somewhere along the line, the isms start to sneak in, so to speak. The MV-22s, once their rotors go forward, they're effectively an aircraft and their speed almost doubles. So we arrived prior to the Huey with Oscar II in it, the Zulu. Their intent was that they arrive initially, set the overwatch, and then we arrive. We arrived before them due to the speed of our aircraft and arrived prior to 
looking back, the command aircraft over the top. So this command aircraft SOP was get on, get overhead and drop infrared flares. So under nods, it absolutely lights up a large area of the countryside. That, I distinctly remember that wasn't the case because it was near pitch black when their helicopter arrived. I remember it cresting over the hill and coming down and there was no ambient light. It was very dark, even under nods. We had somewhat heavy landings, so they were, it was an uncomfortable sort of flight in. Heavy landings in these V-22s. To the extent we hit the deck, our aircraft, it's like you sort of got close enough and then just dropped the cyclic because we hit with enough force that the Marine on the rear tail, he's got a gun on the, on the rear tail, and the Marine Lodi, his ammo bounced out of his tray and the gun swung back around into the aircraft at us. So we're all trying to get past it and him as he's trying to cradle his ammunition and get back on board the aircraft and then get off as well. So you just sort of fan out from there. You take a knee, wait for the aircraft to depart, thinking in your head, what the fuck was all that about? They leave. We start to head up these terraced sort of fields. We're herding sheep at that point, herding cats. Um, the DEA have got their Afghan partner force, as do we. They're the ones that are to do the clearance. Where do we enable it? Huey crests the hill to our east as we're walking up these terraced sort of fields approaching the target building and it completely shoots over the top of the crest and it was enough at the back of the stack at the line there was maybe four of us at the rear of this force element as it moved up we're looking at it or I'm, I'm just sort of watching him because at this point he's still fanning but he's fanning down into this massive re-entrant and it was too steep and i've just looked at him and it was one of those moments where as you're saying it it happens I'm looking at him going, what the fuck is this dickhead doing? If he keeps going, he's going to crash. And it's not going to work, yeah. If he, and as I said, in your mind, it just crash. <laughs> and really surreal. There's no massive explosions in the movies. It's just dust and boof. The, a rotor got shorn off in the, in the crash. It sort of cavitated above our bloody heads like this big <laughs> across the head. So the guys up the front of the stack, for all they knew, they'd heard a bang and a whoosh. So they thought it was on, remarked later that they thought a rocket had been fired, but it was the rotor of the aircraft. I started sprinting toward it straight away. I had a gun, I had about 43, well not about, 43 point something kilos of gear. You have to weigh in before every job to get the correct measurements and weights for the aircraft. So everything always weighed in at around the 43 mark. Um, as a result, everyone started overtaking me, well overtaking me. Previous experience of an aircraft crash with the unit in Afghanistan at that point was 100% casualties, killed or injured. So you're just assuming the worst. Assuming that fuck, we just lost. Everyone's dead or wounded. Everyone's fucked. That entire team's just gone. I saw people moving about. The aircraft was on its side, and there were people climbing out of the side door, the door facing the sky. Obviously, mm. I had the gun. My team commander directed me to just head up onto a point with the gun. The gun being on a machine gun, it's always about providing the overwatch, providing a base of fire, not to be down in amongst it. Once Fallen Angel was called across the net, that completely changes the mission to recovery of the aircraft and personnel. That was maybe three o'clock in the morning and we were into the 30th of August at that point. Just seeking to recover them. Different things happened. USAF recovery, special operations recovery sort of element, an element of those guys got inserted in via Blackhawk. Were you receiving any fire from No, them? there was no, that, that was, was the other one too. That was, that was the other one too, especially there was an ex expectation and anticipation of it as soon as the sun came up because it was Helmand. And our experience, another, again, you, the general experience of Helmand up until that point was as soon as the sun comes up, it's on because you've got a really proactive enemy in that area of the country. One of the team commanders started calling out their call signs, 2-2 two, two and 2-5 over the radio and not getting any response. 
I was co-located with a couple of guys that had been done the Rio and a lot of training, their initial commando training reinforcement cycle with Gal, who was 2-5. So I just said to them, just prepare yourself, fellas. I think Gal and Merv are dead. They prepared to get a KIA call. It never officially came over the net as such. It was it just, yeah, you just knew it. Helicopter came in to recover them around dawn. I saw the bags, the body bags, they're on the stretchers being extracted up to this helicopter. I can't remember if what time of day or night or morning it was. I just remember looking at the bags because they'd obviously been crushed underneath the aircraft. They were big boys. Like Merv was a big boy, real solid fucking dude. And I just remember looking at it going, fuck, man, that, that's like really small. It's a really small looking bag. Like he's a bit there bigger than that. It's just, again, one of those weird thoughts, moments of clear thought that you have to yourself. It's like something about this, of all, of all the things that have gone on that night, Shit, two days before that, again, the first of that through those three missions in that cycle of counter-narcotics missions, where you hit this area, again, it's Hellman, it's our first time into Hellman, and it's any of us that have been there previously, like you're keyed up, you just, there's an absolute expectation that you're about to get in a fight. The action spot. It didn't occur. Hellman became really anticlimactic in that sense, and it was almost a source of distress or concern on some level in some way in your body mind and body because you were hitting these areas you had in previous years on other rotations and they weren't dynamic there was this keyed up moment or anticipation that was never sort of released and that this first mission was an example of that so as our team was maneuvering down through these fields and compounds and whatever else we copped a single round from a sniper some asshole with a, a dragonov scoped weapon just a really close round that went over the back of my mates on my oppo's shoulder and across the front of my face, like you felt it. So we dropped, we were in a field, we dropped, I'd crawl out of that field. And then upon the extraction, same extraction, sorry, extraction from that same mission, we all pile onto one of these V-22s and the American loadmasters go about doing this really administrative <laughs> check. And we're all looking literally Let, on the deck go. for a minute. We're like, let's go. And man, they took off. As soon as we took off, asshole took a shot and hit the loadmaster on the rear, shattered his brake heel, shot him in the arm. And he just dropped like a sack onto the deck in front of us on this aircraft. So everyone hooked in to treat him and react and whatever else. We flew back to camp. And that naive sort of attitude they had wasn't lost on me or lost on us. That they just sat on the deck for a fucking minute and a half trying to count us all in. Like we're and just, that was the price we paid. And they copped it as a yeah. result. That Marine copped it. They're the ones that you feel almost feel a sense of frustration for that guy. Yeah, the duality of it all, whatever, you also think, well, shit, that, he's probably the only dude in that air wing that's going to get awarded a Purple Heart because that's what Americans get when they're wounded or yeah, killed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's gonna, that's going to be the point of pride for his deployment because he was going to evidently be fine anyway. You come home after your last deployment in 2012, but you're still on active service for another five years. Can you explain that? Task group wound up in 2013. We... Continue to train and for whatever reason, the strategic focus returned to our immediate neighborhood in the South Pacific. So close country became the focus of a lot of our training and amphibious training. In the 2014, operationally it changed again and smaller teams were being deployed in security detachments back to the Middle East area of operations. All in hindsight now, my mental health was struggling. I did not bounce back from Nate and Merv at all. I was running on fumes all through the remainder of that rotation in 2012. There was that and a couple of um, situations that developed back in, domestically within the unit, really toxified the sort of um, the environment back there as well and exacerbated that, my condition effectively. 
the last great hurrah, I suppose, leading into 2014, we were stood to a couple of times. Guys certainly deployed in support of the airliner in Ukraine and uh, Iraq. For me, though, the highlight of 2014 was I qualified for the Invictus Games. I qualified to get onto the Invictus Games. So I travelled to London with my family, got treated like a rock star for three weeks at this inaugural athletic event. Myself and a friend of mine is in my team on that last tour. We both were the sort of special operations element representation in the Australian team that went over. It was the very first Invictus Games, so no one knew what to expect. There was certainly none of the hype and fanfare that it had when it came here to Sydney in 2018, but it was really a really remarkable experience nonetheless. Adrian, you mentioned the Invictus Games. By coincidence, we've actually caught up with Adrian Talbot, who was also competing at the Games. Yeah, another case of everyone's a nobody. So Adrian's gone on to do great things with the RSL now, but at the time I, I did the 50 metre freestyle with him. I think he won a number of medals, but standing on the blocks next to each other, going, looking with this crowd around us, and I just asked him, did you train for this? And he's shaking his head and I'm going, I didn't either. And then the, pew, then the buzzer went off and went, shit, it's on. Yeah, it was a different vibe about it when we were doing it back then. But in addition to that, you had Phil Thompson. He was there just, um, I think he did weightlifting and a couple of other things. He's now a federal member. It's what really kicked off his desire to move into veteran welfare and what ultimately led him to politics. Returning from that, I think October 2014, I didn't last that much longer. There were a couple of situations that occurred at work and ultimately put my hand up, said I'm struggling. And then from there, it was a case of treatment, which then moved to a process of medical discharge. And that took um, 14, took maybe 18, close to 18 months. You were actually medically discharged around May 2017, you were saying? Correct. What happened after that? I'd had a series of hospital stays through 2016 and, and early 2017. Breakdown of my family unit around that time as well. 2018 would have been the most difficult year. It was actually post-service, but I don't know what it was about that year. I just I, I've crashed in the early half of that year, and it was it was awful, the most horrible year. Trying to claw my way back from that that resulted in a lot of stays in hospital as well, to the point of you know electroconvulsive therapy, yes, serious medications, all sorts. It's been a difficult path. And this has been the culmination of basically all the time you've served and it now just coming to a head at the end? I think so. One of the other folks you've interviewed on here, in listening to the podcast, he recalled having a conversation with a friend of his from the SEALs and remarked that it takes about 10 years to decompress. And when I heard it, I went, yeah, that'd be about, that's accurate. So Adrian, would that be Harry Moffat from the SAS? Yes, yeah. You can have all the therapies and support in the world but it's still going to take the time to decompress um and the further you go along in that decompression actively pursuing sort of what you can in that depression within your means you do start to see significant sort of moments where you progress as well as sort of the inverse of that progress you're like shit if this had occurred x amount of years ago this would have been the result um, whereas now it's you're not sweating it so how are you with that decompression now i'm still on my path man creatively i attended an arts course art therapy course run by defense which was fantastic in 2016 it was run out of the university of canberra from that experience i've been able to work or I'm still working on a further sort of bigger artwork with uh a friend of mine, fellow veteran, she's located in Shepparton. Uh, upon completion of that, yeah, we've set the war memorials aware of the theme and the project. So it's something that we'll approach them with once we've completed it. Adrian, what 
lessons would you take from your time in service, and especially with the commandos, and how do you feel you've grown from it? So you've got key, um, like we talked about, H, Bram, Connolly, Dan, Pront, guys that were men, the men, like, cometh the hour, cometh the man. I never had a moment like that. And if I did, it was a small signals-related one where two dudes got to talk to each other. As far as SIGs goes, it's the goalkeeper analogy. No one gives a shit until you let one pass. Led to a very sort of humble existence, I guess you'd say, comparatively. There were a lot of dudes that got away with a lot of stuff over the years that you would look at with a degree of resentment and go, I can't afford to have an attitude like that. I'd get fired because I have been fired from jobs for having that exact same attitude. How do you get away with it? No, I don't. Anyway. They're not a signaler. Yeah, exactly. Rough, tough shooter. Another good mate of mine, Jim Fanick, regular army. He was a platoon commander of the crew at Derapet. Upon returning from that deployment, immediately posted to Singleton into a staff position. And we were just talking about it one day. It's like the men of the hour, there's plenty of them and they have their moment. But the majority of your time, what about the dudes that are just a part of the team? So what is it to be ahead of the team for a period of time and then become part of the team again? Those command moments, they're fleeting compared to the rest of your career within that chain of command as you go up it. So it's, I don't have any hard and fast. It's a theme the better I get and the more well I'm becoming in my own sort of journey and decompression. It's something that Jim and I certainly shoot back and forth. He's still active. He's a commanded staff college right now. And it is sort of, we want to build or talk or develop or create something that addresses what it is to be ahead of the team and then a part of the team and then the head of the team again. What are the qualities of being part of the team? Because that's all I ever was. I was a chook. You sought to as best as I could do. I sought to identify what my commander's needs were, my boss's needs were, and then the best you could get was you were then able to anticipate them on all manner of levels. Be able to anticipate someone's needs as part of that team and do what you can to meet them. Adrian, it's been an amazing story hearing of your military service and your career. And I think back to how we started hearing about all these family members of yours that had served going back to the Napoleonic Wars and prisoner of war camps and naval ships that were sunk. But you mentioned your brother at the beginning. Mm. How do you reflect on your brother's time in the military and yours today? We're sort of the current generation. I have a nephew who's in 8-9 RR. My brother's son is seeking to join. My cousin, he served in 5-RR, sorry. So even our current generation, it's still several of us that went through it it just occurred to me that time post your service it just does take time so my brother the only time we got to see active service in afghanistan was as a contractor as a dog handling contractor he wound that up shortly after my last tour in 2012 we did get to see each other in kabul which was a great moment like sort of hanging out together in kabul the capital up there but just recently when he was down uh, with his son he just sort of remarked me, man, I'd give up everything to be able to go back tomorrow. The comment actually irritated me. I thought, no, I'm picking my daughter up from school tomorrow. I've earned it. Like, no, I've no, I haven't got that. I want to be back, all this, that, and the other. Like, I'll, I'll give anything or do anything. Well, he never had a Merv experience like well, you. Well, that's probably it. Like, I, there's a deep sense of value in what you've got. It may not always make itself known to you in your sort of day-to-day in your psyche, given that you still suffer a series of conditions, but... When he said that, the first thing that came to mind was, fuck no, I'm doing the professional dad thing tomorrow. I'm picking up my kid. Like, I've earned it, dude. I have no desire to go back and get amongst anything else. Adrian, thank you very much for sharing your story with us today. Especially thank you for your service and your bravery. No drama. Thanks, mate. I'm Angus Horden, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. More of that music in just a moment. 
If you enjoyed this conversation with Adrian Humphreys, please jump onto Apple Podcasts and rate us five stars. You can do the same on our Facebook page. Our website with more information about this show and the team behind it is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and also look us up on social media. Also mentioned in this episode was the death of Sergeant Matthew Locke of the SASR. For more on that, listen to Season 2's episode, number 28, Mark Wales, for my conversation with the former SAS officer. All I wanted for me was to come home. I think they just wanted to make sure their brother came back in one piece. And the bonus episode about the late Cameron Baird, VCMG, called The Commando's Father with Doug Baird. So the doorbell rang that particular night. Kay answered the door and there were three soldiers there uh, with their hats in their hand. And she knew, just like I did, that uh, he'd been killed. Angus Horden spoke to Adrian Talbot about the Invictus Games in the Season 2 bonus episode, Invictus Games, with Adrian Talbot. And Invictus, in a way, sort of opened my eyes. But it also gave me, I suppose, the, the, the confidence to, to start addressing some of those, those issues that I hadn't addressed. And again with Adrian about his military service in season three's episode number 65, Adrian Talbot. I didn't even attend Travis's funeral because that was my way of dealing with him dying. Also alluded to in this episode was our podcast in season three, number 68, Harry Moffat. Four helicopters landing under gunfire, coming in, hitting the aircraft, landing at the same time and just taking a split second to look to the left and the right out of the helo and see guys launching out of helos and running towards a gunfire. That's a magic moment. And the Battle of Derapet was also mentioned. This was the battle where Daniel Kieran earned his Victoria Cross. You can hear the VC recipient's recount of that engagement in Season 3, Number 43, Dan Kieran, VC. I knew I had to do something. If I didn't, they were going to die. Subscribe to Life on the Line to never miss an episode. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Closing song, Never Be The Same, by SAS original rock band, The Externals. Featuring singer-songwriter, Harry Moffat. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. Lest we forget.